Father, thank you. In your word, it says, where two or more are gathered, there you are. God, you're here. And as the words of the song that we just sang, we welcome you, Lord Jesus. We welcome you here. Father, I pray that you steady our hearts and our thoughts. Lord, let us hear your word. God, the the sweet invitation and the gentle conviction, Father, to walk in your way. You are so good to us. Thank you for coming on this earth. In your precious name, amen. So we have been working through the book of Genesis this year, learning where we start matters. Who God is, who God is matters. Who we are matters. And the way that we live matters. So through all of these stories in Genesis, we've talked about Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, the Tower of Babel, or Babel. Um, my oldest was home um, from college a couple weekends ago, and we were hanging out, and we were talking about like what top five words we never could remember how to spell. And so there are a couple of those words like that you never know how to say, and you feel really confident until you go to say them. So I don't know if it's Babel or Babel, but it's a fun game to play with people. Conscience is one. I don't know if anybody knows how to spell that, but sometimes that one holds me up. But. Um, so today we are in week two of a new mini-series, which is focused on a man named Abram or Abraham, whose name is later changed to Abraham. So in these next few weeks, we're really going to delve into how he follows God and what that means for his life. Genesis is a story about Israel's beginnings, where God initiates an intimate relationship with Abraham. God's plan of salvation includes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel is God's nation, God's people, whose job it is to restore the chaos that we've seen in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I think the stories that we're going to walk through in this series give us an understanding as to why Abraham was called the father of our faith. And therefore, it gives us a pattern to follow. The whole big picture with Abraham is basically he was blessed by God to be a blessing. Who Abraham is tells us how we receive God's blessing and then carry it into the world. Why would God choose Abraham? to be the father of his chosen people. What is it about Abraham that's different? What makes him the kind of person that can be trusted to move God's story forward? Last week, Brent talked about the courage Abraham had to trust God and to step away from everything he knew. His land, his nation, his family. We looked at Abraham's dad, and we compared how Abraham was different from him. Abraham's dad, a man named Terah, starts out on a journey from his home in Ur, which was a major city in the Mesopotamian Empire, to a land called Canaan. And we highlighted this little verse in Genesis 11. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Terah, Abraham's dad, sets out for Canaan. But he stops a little over halfway in a city known as Haran. 
he settles there. And Brent talked about some of the reasons why he may have, but then he dies there. And today, I want to add a couple more layers to that. Chapter 12 picks up with Abraham setting out for that same land of Canaan. We'll start reading. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went out, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham completes the journey. Today, I want to keep following his story and notice five of the things that made Abraham, Abraham. Five things that make him the father of the chosen people and how those five things can help mold and shape our lives. We'll pick up Genesis 12 again directly after Abram arrives in Canaan, the land to which God told him to go. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. We're going to talk about it later um, in the next weeks, but he's 75. And the Lord says to him, To your offspring I will give this land. That's incredible faith for Abram to believe God. So we read this line. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. It's really easy to read over that detail. God says, go to this land, and I will make you a great nation in it. But there's already people living there. There's already a nation living and thriving there. A nation that's probably not very likely to just move on over for Abraham. So before we go any further, let me give you a really brief crash course on these people known as the Canaanites. Back in Genesis chapter 9, we read the story of when Noah and his family got off the ark after the flood and Noah planted a vineyard. He then makes wine from the grapes, drinks too much, passes out naked. Oh, Noah. But respectfully, two of his sons covered him while one son named Ham did not. As a result, Ham becomes the bad brother, and Noah curses the whole family line, starting with Ham's son. Any guesses on what Ham's son's name is? Canaan. So here's Noah's curse. May there be a curse on Canaan. May he be the lowest slave to his brothers. Noah also said, may the Lord, the God of Shem, be praised. May Canaan be Shem's slave. I'm really glad Noah wasn't my grandpa. So basically, Noah says, the descendants of Canaan, the Canaanites, will be the slaves of the descendants of Shem. 
And Shem just so happens to be at the top of Abraham's family tree. And what you find throughout Genesis, and really throughout a lot of the Old Testament, is that the Canaanites and the Shemites are constantly battling it out. They are ancient enemies, arch rivals. Kind of like U of M and Michigan State, fighting over that Paul Bunyan trophy. In case anyone is wondering, since 1953, when they started playing for the trophy, Michigan leads 39-29 to 2, and overall, Michigan leads 72-38 to 5. So I'm going to be honest with you guys, as I was looking this up, I thought to myself, if State wins more games, I am not using it as an example. <laughs> Our tribals, ancient enemies, except this is a lot worse, but kind of like that. So when God said, go to Abraham, the land he sent to is filled with people who would like him dead. The ancient enemies of his people. So the first thing we learn about Abraham's character is that Abraham takes a step toward his enemies. Why did God choose Abraham as the beginning of or the father of his people? I wonder if it is in part because he's willing to move toward others. He doesn't hide from the world or look the other way. He doesn't ignore them. He's obedient and he walks towards those he might not understand, agree with, or like for that matter. That is really, really hard to do. I recently had to do that myself. It's laying down your pride, what you know is true, and putting aside hurtful or untrue things said about you and taking that step toward them. I don't understand the whys of this person behaving this way, or do I agree with their behaviors, but it's taking a step toward them. I don't do this perfectly, absolutely not. But the practical application of this for today is walking towards someone, having a heart posture of humility and grace. Asking the Lord to help you see that person through his eyes. And that truly changes how you see them and how you feel about them. Fully and wholly loved. And doggone it, that is really hard sometimes. I wish I could tell you that by doing that, taking that step forward, it healed stuff. It didn't. But it's a God-honoring thing to do. It's stepping in obedience and walking towards someone. Having a heart willing to move towards someone who feels like an enemy is being obedient to the one who loves us and the one who longs to restore broken relationships. Abraham moves toward his enemies. But there's more to his character. As Abraham moves toward the promised land, his wealth and his belongings grow. And his, nephews, his nephew Lot's, his wealth and his belongings grow too. They have flocks and herds and tents and people. The Bible tells us that eventually it was just too much and there was fighting in the clan, specifically with, with Lot. 
So let me tell you a little bit about Abraham and Lot's relationship. We read that Lot's father, Haran, died back in Genesis 11. And when that happened, Lot became part of Abraham's dad's household. He was under his care. And then when he died, Lot became like a son to Abraham. So Abraham had intentionally looked out for, had cared for Lot for years. But their family cooperative had reached its limits. The local grazing land couldn't nourish both of their herds. So the shepherds argued with one another. They got on each other's nerves. They annoyed each other. They needed more space. So Abraham came to a solution. And we read in Genesis 13. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of Jordan towards Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. This story is a little interesting, because at first it seems like it's just a story about geography. Who settled where and how those people came to be and ended up where they did. But this story actually tells us something about Abraham's character. He selflessly looked to the needs of others. He allowed Lot to choose first. Abraham could have sided with his men against Lot or told Lot to, told Lot to know his place. But instead, he valued their relationship over the petty details of a disagreement. Abraham wanted to bless Lot and remove the tension from their relationship. I kind of don't blame Lot for taking that portion of the land. It was near cities, it was fertile, it was well-watered, it was perfect for raising a thriving flock. And it held prospects of gaining even more wealth because there would be an abundance of people and traders. He chose the obvious place. On the other hand, Abram's land, the central ridge of land in Canaan, was really rocky and it didn't support vegetation for grazing animals or thri a thriving flock. But Abraham loved Lot enough to give him the opportunity to take the best land. He wasn't concerned with having the best for himself, but was willing to let Lot make the first choice. He would accept whatever was left over. Rather than squabbling with Lot, Abraham trusted God to take care of him and provide for his needs. He selflessly demonstrated to Lot that he cared about him. Abraham showed Lot that their relationship was more important than arguing over material things and desires. 
I wonder if God chose Abraham because he was the kind of person who would trust God no matter what, who would put others before himself and be less concerned about his own comfort. In this selfless act, Abraham trusted God more than what he thought would be best for himself. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around where you are to the north and the south and the east and the west. All the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of this land for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. The end of that story is Abraham walking the land, and there he builds an altar to the Lord. He walked and he built an altar. Why would you build an altar? You would build an altar to remember, to remember what God has done in your life, to remember how even when life is painful or ugly or hard, he was there. Altars were made as a refuge, a place to worship, a place to celebrate an encounter with God, a place to remember. In Mark Batterson's book, Wild Goose Chase, he asks, have you ever noticed how often people in the Old Testament built altars? It seems that they were building them all over the place all the time. Why? Because we have a natural tendency to remember what we should forget and forget what we should remember. Altars help us remember what God doesn't want us to forget. They give us a sacred place to go back to. He goes on to say that so many of us feel spiritually lost because we don't have or remember the spiritual milestones to help us find our way back to God. We need altars that renew our faith, that remind us of the faithfulness of God. How do we do that? How would we, in Granville, in 2023, build an altar? Do something, create something, write something in the moments when you do see God so that you are reminded in the moments when you don't see him. That just because you can't see him right now, it doesn't mean God isn't present, that he isn't with you. You've seen him before, you've seen him shown up. He's there. Sometimes it is difficult to see God. Sometimes we do go through deserts. Sometimes we find ourselves stuck between a past we can't go back to and a future that is uncertain. And that space can feel like enemy territory. It's in those moments that we need to be reminded that God did show up. You might not see him now, but just because you don't see him, that you don't feel him, it doesn't mean he's abandoned you. He said to us, I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. That is a promise to us that even when life is hard, even when it feels brutal, even when he feels far away, 
Sometimes there's moments when our prayers feel alive. It feels like you and God are in direct communication. And sometimes it can feel like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling when you think to yourself, what am I even doing? Is any of this real? Am I just talking to myself? It's in those moments that you need to be reminded of the moments that were real to remember. There are moments in life when worship feels alive, a note of a song, a lyric, a line from a message, and it's like your soul comes to life. You feel like you can breathe again. And then there are those moments where you feel nothing. And in those moments, you need reminders of the good moments. Build an altar. Don't just float through life. We need tangible ways to cherish these experiences, to help us remember, to remember that he is with us. I have a journal, and it's not nearly as detailed as I wish it was. But the chicken scratch of the moments of the last seven years of my life have given me hope. They fill me with peace when I thumb through those pages. When I see things and read things that I completely forgot God said to me or that I read or someone else said to me. It's an altar for me to remember when and where God showed up. And he did in really wild and wonderful and weird and faithful ways. We all need altars that renew our faith by reminding us of the faithfulness of God. This altar building is, tells us something else about Abraham's character. Abraham intentionally remembered the faithfulness of God. Abraham building that altar is an image of someone who lived their life and didn't forget God's presence and his faithfulness along every step of the journey, even when it was hard, even when he didn't see it. Abraham saw himself as someone who needed reminding. I see myself in that. I need that reminding. Someone who desperately wanted to remember God's faithfulness. He trusted God enough to submit himself to the calling that God had on his life. He walked out that calling, and he remembered God every step of the way. And then when Abraham steps away, the ties with his family change. Remember how Genesis 12 began. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. This phrase, father's household for us, feels small, like it's not really a big deal. Like he just moved out of the house he grew up in, right? Pretty normal to us. Nobody wants to be living in their parents' basement with their wife and their sheep. But this moving away, this going somewhere, wasn't normal for his culture. In fact, the Hebrew phrase for father's household is bait of, house of father, and it had great significance in that culture. There's a little side note here. I've never taken Hebrew, and so Google is usually my friend when it comes to helping me pronounce a Hebrew word. But it did not come through for me this week, and I'm glad it did not. 
I asked my friend Jeremy from Fairhaven, and he told me it's pronounced bait-uff. Then he elaborated a little bit, and it has nothing to do directly with today's sermon, but I thought it was so cool and I wanted to share it with you. He said, there are a few other cities that begin with the word bait. The most well-known and significant one is Beit Lachem, Bethlehem. So, if Beit means house of, Lechem means bread. So, Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, literally means house of bread. Which means Jesus, who will call himself the bread of life, was literally born in a city whose name means house of bread. Essentially, the bread of life was born in a bakery, Jeremy said. So I thought that was pretty cool. And I thought, well, no wonder I love carbs so much. It's like I'm loving the Lord. (laughs) So remember, Lot had become a part of Abraham's household, even though they spread out their dwellings and they went their separate ways. The ancient Near Eastern cultures were built on family patriarchy. There's something kind of beautiful about this ancient patriarchy. This picture, the first one, is a picture my brother Jordan took this fall in Israel. It's the kind of structure that would have existed. So if you see the house in the middle, that was the father's house. And then those are ruins, but you see the squares in the bottom? Those were all houses that the children built, the sons built the home. The wives went with their husbands to their family's beta, but the sons stayed with their father and they, they built these homes. So these cities would often start with a single patriarch's house and the extended family would build onto it. So you'd get married and add rooms, your children would grow and they would get married and add more rooms. So as the patriarch, The bait of provided protection, care, and rescue. So it's really significant that Abraham walked away from the protection and safety of the home of his patriarch. But Abraham isn't a wayward son. He was obedient to God. And the result of his choice is interesting. In chapter 14, we see the story of Abram and someone from his growing clan. So there's a story about five kings fighting against four other kings, and they're having a battle over some land. The five kings lost to the four, and the cities and towns got captured. So we read, The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. So you see that Abraham stepped out of the protection of his father's household, 
only to extend that protection to someone else. It's the story of rescuing Lot. It tells something else about the character, the standard by which Abraham lives. He steps out of his own protection in order to protect others. His entire calling was to become a great nation, to extend his care and rescue and protection to all nations. When God changes his name, he changes it from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of multitude. Why him? Why Abraham? Because he's the kind of person who will leave his protection for the sake of protecting someone else. So another tidbit to this part of the story, Lot's basically kidnapped. So remember, the patriarch would ensure the safety of all those living in the household. For example, if a family member were taken collateral for a debt, the patriarch would redeem them or buy them back into his house and restore their status as the children of the bait of. Or in the cases where a family member is kidnapped, the patriarch would go on a rescue mission like Abraham did with Lot to get them back and bring them back to the safety and the protection of the bait of. So remember, when Lot's father died, he became a part of Abraham's household. So Abraham went after him to rescue him. He wasn't Lot's literal father, but he was acting with the character of a good parent. Abraham was living out the character of a good father. Abraham is known as the father of God's people. Do you guys remember the old camp song, Father Abraham had many sons, right arm, left arm? I still do not understand the words or what the point of that song is, but it was a rocking good time in fourth grade at Camp Geneva. In this particular story, though, he hears, Abraham hears that someone from his bait of his household had been lost. So what does he do? He finds his 318 trained men and goes on an all-out rescue mission to bring his family member back home to his father's house. This is a story about the first person in God's plan to redeem the world reflecting the character of what God is like. Abraham was a man of incredible character. He moved toward his enemies. He selflessly looked to the need of others. He intentionally remembered the faithfulness of God. He stepped out of his own protection in order to protect others. And he was a good father. As God's story continues to unfold throughout the Bible, we learn more and more and more about the character of God as our good, good father. And then when we reach Jesus in the biblical narrative, he calls this invisible God by the name Father. Jesus himself, amongst many more, shared these characteristics. Jesus moved toward his enemies. Jesus selflessly looked to the needs of others. Jesus intentionally remembered the faithfulness of God. Jesus stepped out of his own protection in order to protect others. And Jesus pointed us to the good father. 
This is ultimately a story about the dearest person in God's plan to redeem the world, to rescue us, reflecting the character of what God is like, Jesus. Today, we celebrate and we remember Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a donkey bringing peace to a tired and broken world. And then in the midst of the shouting and the hosannas, we read, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? Instead of reveling in this overpowering throng of rejoicing all around him, Jesus did something pretty unexpected. As he gazed at the delighted, celebratory faces of all the people standing there, the whole city of Jerusalem with its familiar structures that he knew so well in the background, Jesus wept. Tears in the midst of this grand celebration, suddenly this scene is taking on a little bit of a different flavor. We now have Jesus displaying vulnerable tears running down his cheeks. The word that's used for wept here is clio, which means weep out loud, expressing uncontainable, audible grief. Loud, deep, guttural sobbing. Jesus literally cried his heart out. Knowing that throughout time, people are people, and tears can often make people feel uncomfortable. I imagine this crowd quickly dispersing, people gathering their palm branches and their children, hustling home, whispering to each other, what is wrong with him? Why on earth is he crying? Are you wondering why Jesus weeps too? He was so overcome with sorrow and grief that he openly expressed the depth of his lamentation over the city of the people who don't understand or respond to the true meaning of Savior, to the true meaning of knowing God as Father, their good Father, that they missed remembering the altars that pointed to God's lasting faithfulness. Jesus was literally standing in front of them as their peace, their joy, their hope, the one pointing them to the Father, and they missed it. Jesus longed to save them, to save us. He longs to be that true, deep, lasting source of peace and joy and hope that even in the heart and the ugly and the broken of life, we can have peace. We can see joy. We can find hope. He longs to have us see his faithfulness and remember it. And they missed it. And I think so often we miss it too. This is why Jesus was weeping for the people that day that he rode the donkey. He knew they didn't understand. He knew they had trouble remembering. He knows that in the midst and the hardness of life and pain that we forget 
that we struggle to remember. And Jesus wept because they don't get it and we don't get it. We don't fully grasp what a life rooted in him looks like. When he tells us that he came so that we could have abundant, full life. And we choose other things to pacify that fullness. The desire for fullness. C.S. Lewis describes this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a hol- an offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I wonder if that's why Jesus wept that day. That we are content making mud pies, doing life and things our way. When instead he is offering a new way, his way, a glorious holiday at the sea. A way that in spite of the difficulty and pain, his way fills us with a deep, lasting peace and joy and hope. That in this life, we too quickly move away from our enemies. We selfishly look to our, selfishly look to our own needs We forget God's faithfulness. We protect ourselves and we forget that he is a good father. I wonder if he wept because we forgot his words when he invites us. He bids us to come. Because when we do, we are changed, we are renewed, and we walk as people who are fully and dearly and wholly loved. But... The beautiful, glorious, most wonderful thing in all of this is that in spite of us, in spite of what we forget, in spite of our sins and our natural bent to walk away from a life of flourishing, in spite of all of this, he loves us with an everlasting love. He loves us with a love that nailed him on a cross just five days later. This ancient story that we've read today points to a good father who has a home in heaven. That home can be our home, a home that he desires for us to choose to live in, a bait of far greater and stronger than any home made by human hands. And we have the invitation to come. Jesus himself says it in this way, John 14, 2 through 3. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? I will come back and take you to be with me so that you can also be where I am. Our good Father longs for us to join him in our home that he is preparing for us. Like Abraham going to rescue Lot, our good Father comes to rescue us, to give us a forever home, our bait of. 
Through our Slack messages this week, my brother-in-law Jordan had the idea for some keys. We have the key to our Father's house. It's our home that he has made for us. It's a home on earth that when we invite him in, we are filled with a peace and a joy and a hope and love, this understanding that even when life is hard, even when it's horrible and ugly, even when we don't know the answers or what way to turn, that he has a key for us to his home, to his heart, and he wants us to come. This morning while the band is playing, I invite you to come up and just take one of these little keys for this week as Holy Week. Set it somewhere where you see it and think about the Father's deep love for you. A love that he wept because he wants us to get it. He wants us to know it. A love from a father who sent his son to die for our sins. And so in us accepting Jesus and knowing him as our savior, it, it changes us. It gives us a hope and a future. So I invite you this morning to take a little key and remember this week how much you are loved.